I thought I would uh, begin, this is, this is my uh, marriage counseling solution moment. Uh, I need to sprinkle these in, in from time to time. Sometimes there are elegant solutions to problems. You didn't think there was an answer. Here's an answer. Here's a possibility. Freedom good home. <laughs> Beautiful six-month male kitten, orange and uh, caramel patty, simple, friendly, very affectionate, ideal with family, or handsome 32-year-old husband, personable, funny, good job, but doesn't like cats. Says he goes or cat goes. <laughs> Call Jennifer, come see both, and decide what you'd like. <laughs> That's not a solution I would have picked, but okay, okay. Ah, uh, maybe that's funny. Uh, okay. history for like two or three hundred years and now I want you to decide which stories you tell and which ones you leave out. Yeah. Did I turn it on? Yep, we're good. Um, so you've seen his imprint all the way along but now you're at a point where you get to meet the prophet himself. Uh, and then just to give you a, a little bit of a historical background on this, I, I ran, ran some things between Joseph and Smith and the prophet Mormon. Um, were they named after, they're both named after their father, right? Right? Were they both sober kids? Yeah. Joseph about age 12. Because uh, we know about two years prior to uh, the first vision, he was already studying and becoming concerned. Uh, Mormon, uh, age 11, I think that's pro probably should be age 10. Visited by the Lord. Uh, what age for Joseph? Yeah. How about uh, Mormon? Yeah. What age did they become responsible for the Nephi records? Joseph, 23. Mormon, 24. Okay. Preach the gospel? Yeah. But only to the peaceable people. And we'll talk about that especially more uh, in about two weeks. Call of an apostle? Yeah. Saw attacks against the church? Yeah. 
became a general about Joseph. Yeah. Yeah. Nauvoo. Mormon. Age 16. We'll talk about that in a second. Killed defending his people. For Joseph, that was Carthage. For Mormon, he was wounded at Camorra, but did not die at Camorra. In fact, we don't know how long after Camorra he lived. He, uh, with all due respect to Arnold Freeberg's great picture in the Book of Mormon. He will live for a while after Camorra, but ultimately dies there. Okay, that said, let's, let's take a look at this remarkable person if we can. I'm going to have a hard time getting past the first two verses. I just want you to know. <laughs> and now I, Mormon, for Mormon 1-1-1, make a record of the things which I have both seen and heard and call it the Book of Mormon. I love, by the way, the uh, uh, Elder Ballard's uh, discussion. We were talking about this uh, yesterday. Uh, if somebody asks you, uh, are you a Mormon, what, what would your response be? Rick, if somebody asks you, are you, so are you, you're a Mormon, right? Yes, absolutely. I belong to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Better known as Mormons. Okay. And I think, and that, that's, a, that's a really good answer. Yes. I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, now because we also believe in addition to the Bible, we also believe in the Book of Mormon. Uh, we're sometimes called Mormon after a great uh, ancient uh, Christian prophet that lived a number of years ago on this continent. Because <laughs> we're still trying to figure out for a while the church was saying maybe we'll tamp down on the idea of Mormon. Now it's like with the, the Book of Mormon and the Mormon moment, now they're just like, I am Mormon. So if you're going to refer to the church, uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, if it's going to be a group of us, a church member of the, you have a whole group of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints people, better off you just go, this is a group of Mormons, saints. Okay? Alright. Now, about that time, verse 2, Amaron hid up the records unto the Lord. He came unto me, I being about how old? Ooh. Yeah, before you get off the Mormon thing, um, we were living, of course, you know, in Missouri for a while there, but St. Louis was one of the big cities for the Mormon.org commercials, and there's billboards, and everybody's bumper stickers, and it was so fun to stay conferences late, got up, share her testimony on how she joined the church through the website, and she ended with, and I'm a Mormon. I think ultimately there's an identity that is, I think what the church said is rather than try and fight that, we're just going to kind of rebrand it and make a, let's define what a Mormon is. You know, the Mormons are your neighbors and they're doing great, wonderful things, yeah. I'd like to pass on a thought concerning that. In that, when I am asked what church I belong to, I paused just a half a second on Jesus Christ. Mm. Let that sink in a little bit. What do they say? I like that. That, that they, that's perfect. Thank you. Okay. Now, by the way, I've been ten years old 
when I begin to be learned somewhat of the learning of my people. This is fascinating to me in the sense that, let me ask, uh, do we know of any other prophet in history that A, saw the destruction of almost everybody that he was preaching to, and B, was ordained at 10 years old? Saw the destruction of almost everybody he preached to was ordained to the priesthood at 10, 10 years old. Anybody? Well, I don't know who was ordained, but I mean, Noah's, everyone he saw. I mean, they all died except for his family. <laughs> okay. Noah. If you go to section 107, Noah was ordained at 10. And there are some major parallels at that point between uh, Mormon and Noah. He kind of channels Noah a bit here. Um, which is fascinating to me. Maybe speculation spot. How bad a missionary was Noah, by the way? Was he really horrible? He only, he only saved eight people? What was happening with Noah? What would happen as, he would, as people would join the church? Inspired version says they were being translated. Okay? He, he converted a lot of people. The city of Enoch had just occurred. They were being caught up to Enoch. And again, you go through the Joseph Smith inspired version. We won't take time to do that. It's just that Noah was actually having a lot of success. The, the, the righteous were caught up to Enoch. The rest of them were kind of hanging around. Uh, and they got drowned. Okay, so here's Mormon preaching away, and he's going to get a chance to preach to some people. Was there anybody in their midst that might have had the keys of translation? The three Nephites. Yeah, is it possible that some of that is going on? Who knows? I just think it's it. When I start seeing parallels and combinations, my brain takes a step back and I go, hmm, I wonder. That's just interesting to me. Anyway, that's it. So here's, here's Mormon, and he's, he's 10. Now, you wonder, what was it that Amaron saw in a 10-year-old? Anybody teach 10-year-olds in primary or something? Can you picture that? Like, there's a 10-year-old. Yeah, that's right. There you go. Okay, we're working on my, my video game. He's going to see something in him, and he says, by the way, you think there was some inspiration involved here? that the Lord was, in, was inspiring Amaron to say, there's your boy right there. In the same way that uh, uh, Samuel would have picked out King David as a boy. I mean, there's a lot of precedent for, for young guys. Okay. But we're going to get two things. Um, I was somewhat learned after the manner of learning of my people. And Amaron said, I perceive two things. What? I am a sober child and quick to observe. Okay, Let's take the first one. Sober child. Do you you know how, how truthful Mormon was? This is like the ultimate in, in truthful reporting. Okay, Look at um, in verse 2, he's 10 years old and he is a sober child. Now I want you to pop down for just a second to verse 15. What's that one say? I was, how old? 
15 and I'm what? Somewhat of a sober child. Is that truth in advertising? <laughs> At 10, he's a sober child. At 15, now he's 15. He's somewhat sober. You know, it's mostly there, but he's still being 15. I just think that, that's hilarious to me. And I think he's being honest. Okay, yeah, I was pretty good, but alright, I was 15. I was somewhat sober. Mostly sober, but not completely sober. <coughs> like being nearly dead. You know, I'm somewhat sober. But, uh, and by the way, so Joseph Smith has the first vision. Is he somewhat sober after the vision? Yeah, that's why he's going back at 17 saying, I need another vision here because truth be told, I've been leading these work parties to do things and sometimes the boys don't do what they're supposed to do. So I, I punch him out. I just had to do it. I just had to. They weren't doing it, so yeah, I punched them out. Sorry. I'm so much sober. I'm just not quite as. Does that make sense? Okay. So, anyway, so sober, how would you define sober? It's what? Trustworthy. Serious. Teachable. When we use it in addiction language, Sober means not under the influence, right? Not drunk. Which means we're thinking right. We're not under the influence of any other substances. Yeah. I think that's so. Sober means that I'm not under the influence of anything else. I am more serious. I am more trustworthy. All that. Now, the second part of this, though, I think is fascinating. You are sober and you are quick to observe. Um, let me use this because there are three, actually three, like my grandson, three. <laughs> um, there are three definitions for me of this being quick to observe. Let me tell you number three and then we'll do one and two. What we're about to find out from with when the story starts and Mormon finally shifts from all of this editing and everything, it's like, now I'm going to tell the Mormon story. Okay? Where is he living? In the north or in the land southward? No. He's in the north. Because what's about to happen is a year later, his father Mormon is going to take him into the land southward down to Zarahemla. So he starts... Our story begins in the north with him being 10. Now that's fascinating for me uh, in the fact that if, 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 if Zarahemla is in the south and they're in the land northward, there's a pretty good possibility that Amaron uh, and Mormon, in a time where the people are really, really wicked, and they're starting, the, they're starting a massive war down south, what would be up north? Probably an enclave of righteous. There, there would have been, uh, under the old law of Moses, there would have been enclaves of priests. Elijah was part of that enclave of priests. So it could have been a righteous group up north, away from all the wickedness in the big city, down to Zarahemla. Possibly Bountiful. 
makes sense to me that there would have been an effect. So it could have been that Amaron knew Mormon, the elder, and spotted his son, and here's this righteous kid in this righteous enclave. Uh, and here they are in the north. Now, what does it mean though for them to then go from the north and they're going to go directly into Zarahemla? Are they going from uh, into a more wicked area? Yeah. In a sense, this is my um, Mormon in this sense for me becomes the image I have. Remember on 9-11 the pictures of the firefighters going into the burning building while everybody else was streaming out? That's Mormon. Mormon is going into the burning building while the righteous are leaving. The burning building is there in him. It's becoming more wicked, becoming more horrible. Uh, they are uh, starting a massive war with the Lamanites. And Mormon is going into the middle of that rather than the righteous like the anti-Nephi Levites are like, we're out of here. We're just going to the north countries. We're leaving this all together. Why? Why would they be going south at a moment when the righteous were probably going north? Why is he going into the building while everybody else is leaving? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Actually the records are north with him. If you take a look at where Shem and <coughs> Cumorah and everything, that's in the land northward. And we're down at Zarahemla's down there. They're on a mission? Yeah, to do what? To collect whoever will come Ah, possibly. Okay. What was he just told he was supposed to be? He is sober and what else? Quick to observe. Because that had been a command. Go observe. Observe what? What's his life's work going to be? Besides being a general. The records. So he's going to have gone through all that. Here's the records. Here's the prophecies. Here's the predictions. Here's the warnings of the Lord. And then at the end of the day, he's going to be quick to observe what? The destruction. The destruction. And he will be the witness. I was there, not just from afar, not just from letters. I went there and saw it with my own eyes. And it's not going to be the general over that, but at least we will be there in the middle of that. I'm going to report what I saw. Speaking <coughs> today, we only write about the bad, pretty much in the news. Yeah. About the good. Yeah, I do. And, and so, he's going to go down where it's happening. I've got to observe this. That's my job, I think. That, and that would make sense that it would fall to the, the holder of the records to actually be the witness that says, I went through all, I read it all, he's going to have about 15 years, I figure, to really do that fully. And then he's going to then go, he's going to, he's going to be down in there and say, yep, Samuel said this would happen, yep, Alma said this would happen, yep, Nephi said this would happen, yep, it happened. I was there. I was an eyewitness to all of this stuff. And I was quick to observe. Does that make sense? Okay. That's, so that's, there are three, there are three, I'm going to spend around, around my grandkids, I want them. Three. Okay, so that's the third one. The first two uh, definitions of quick to observe, I'll, I'll, I'll turn to Elder Bednar and let him do this. Elder Bednar. Yeah, it's Elder Bednar. Yeah. <laughs> Please 
consider the significance of this important spiritual gift. As used in the scriptures, the word observe has two primary uses. The first use denotes to look and to notice. Seeing many things uh, thou observest not. Opening the ears, but he heareth not. The second use of the word, so that was one, here comes two, is to obey or to keep, to be observant. Are you an observant Jew? No, I'm not observant. You know, I'm inactive. Ah. Uh, blessed are they who have kept the commandments and observe the commandments, for they shall obtain mercy. Now, thus, and, and I love the way he put this together, because I kept trying in my mind to go, okay, so which one of you is quick to observe because he obeyed, quick to observe because he noticed things. Elder Bednar says, no, both is true. And he says, Thus, when we are quick to observe, we promptly look and notice and obey. Both of these fundamental elements, looking and obeying, are essential to being quick to observe. And the prophet Mormon is an impressive example of this gift in action. Okay, so let me ask you. If you, if you cultivated in your life the ability to be quick to observe... What would that mean in your daily life? And what would that mean in your calling? Or what would that mean in your families? If you're quick to observe. Well, one thing you'd be obedient. And then secondly, that would help you to be able to learn the gospel better. Okay. You wouldn't question everything. Okay, so part of this is I'm going to be obedient and I'm going to follow. Okay, yeah. But you have to know what it calls. You have to actually be trying to observe something. You know? What are you going to be observing? All the conference talks, the scripture. Ah, okay. Okay, yeah. And going along with, you're observing the conference talks, but you're also observing what people are doing wrong. So you're learning from their mistakes. There's a, there's a spiritual gift that is called this. The gift of discernment. That's right. So this is discernment. This is the ability to discern between good and evil. How about also the ability to observe and to, dis and to discern what is good, better, and best. You have so many things that you can be doing, right? I know, for instance, that in your choice of being here today, you chose the best, obviously. I'm coming in into Are there other things that you could have been doing today? Sure. Involved in, you know, you've got laundry that's just sitting there, and you've got, you know, cookies that need to be baked, and shopping and stuff. You're discerning between good, better, and best. And you're being quick to observe what it is that you want in your life at the, at the moment, which is I need some spiritual strengthening. Okay? How else, if you were going to be quick to observe, would you put those two together in your life? Yeah. The Holy Ghost help you to see what people need and then know how you can fill those needs? Does that make sense to everybody? That in other words, by the Holy Ghost, you're going to discern what people need. I want to serve. And then you're going to be quick to observe, meaning quick. Think about how many times we struggle with the idea of saying, I know what I ought to do, but I don't do it. As we mentioned before, that's C.S. Lewis's whole premise to uh, mere Christianity. We know what we should do, we don't do it. Everything rests on that. Yeah. It was like that conference talk that you were talking about. 
talk to her, but I guess it was put to after whatever. I can't remember the guy's name. We'll say Elder somebody. Yeah. Yes, who said, you know, your child is missing, you immediately start looking for them. Like, we need to do that in the church. If you see something, someone's falling away, immediately get in there. Yeah, it doesn't say gradually to observe, does it? No. It says quick to observe. When I see it, I act. When I see it, I respond. I discern, I see it, I act. I go, I move. Yeah. I think it's important to remember the purpose of doing that. You realize that we're here in this life to heal and to grow. Then that gives focus on what we really do need to observe a little bit more closely. In fact, isn't it interesting, the closer we get to the Spirit, the more that the Spirit one of the reasons why sometimes people are a little reluctant to pray or get too spiritual is because they're going to make you get have things for you to do. I've got places for you to go, and you've got to be responsive, and you've got to roll. And I'd rather not know that. I'm kind of tired as it is. Why would I take on anything more? But he can change our nature. Oh, we can. And as he's changing our nature, as your nature changes, do you think you're going to be quicker to to observe or slower? Quicker. You're going to respond much more quickly to a need. And I believe you respond more reflexively, more reactively. I just, I quit thinking. I know I should take care of this. Well, let me sit down and think about it. Let me weigh the possibilities. And then you just got, that needs to happen. I'm there. There's a great story, a uh, true story, of uh, at the moment that, um, remember that the, the, the uh, in the General Conference of 1856, October, remember that conference? <laughs> Brigham Young. Brigham Young is just getting ready to start conference, and Franklin D. Richards shows up and goes, Wow, it's marvelous. There are hand carts still on their way out there. We just passed them out on the plains. This is October, and, and he's like, What? Yeah, they're, they're coming in droves. It'll be wonderful. I told them to come and, you know, despite the weather will be tempered for their benefit. And they're out there. And Brigham Young says, we have no idea that they were coming. We haven't sent any provisions to get them the rest of the way. Uh, they left way too late. And you told them it was okay to come? Yes! So he gets up in general conference, first address. You know, where we're always waiting, like, what pre what's President Watson going to say? Is he going to announce uh, that we're going to build a new, con you know, a new temple, you know, like in the middle of Rome, right in the Basilica? <laughs> we just have no idea where the new temple's going. Okay, that'd be cool. Uh, he stands up there in, in general conference in October, and he goes, "I have one address for the saints. Go get the cards." We've got to go get the cards. We, have, we haven't made any arrangements for them. They're out there. He knew the weather that was coming. Go get the cards. Women, start baking bread. Men, start getting the wagons together. Go get the cards. Put your blankets together. We've got to go. We've got to go like tomorrow. Well, as they came streaming out of that, one of the brethren saw a guy that he knew in his, in his ward. And the guy's coming down the street in a in a wagon and he didn't have very good shoes uh, and he turns to the brother and he says you were in a general conference and he says no and he says why what was he talking about he said there are handcarts out on the plane and Brigham Young says we gotta go get them 
And the man said, then I'll go. Whoa, ha, buck. And he was gone. That's quick to observe. I see what needs to happen. Don't wait. Respond quickly. I think is that, is that mark of Latter-day Saints who really care. Okay? So I think we get to that point. As our nature changes, we are more likely to serve and serve quickly and not wait. Does that make sense? And I think that's the sense of what Amaron was getting in this 10-year-old boy. Okay? Alright. Anything else on that? Does that make sense? Okay. Okay, now. Let's see how that turns out. So, yeah. I have a question on that subject. Um, I was out with our high priest group leader last week, and there was a brother working on a lady's house, and he was all upset about it, and Bishop was all upset about it, and because it didn't go through the chain of authority. It, it seems like a delicate balance between being concentrated all of our time talents. And, and doing many things of our own. Right, and doing it without the church's permission. Does that make sense? Am I asking no. That? Yeah. No. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no. I, I think sometimes we get caught up in kind of those lines of, of all of that. But uh, no, I think we're going to find that. Think about in a given week, by the way, to our, uh, to your credit, how many acts of service that you guys perform without any words ever being said to any uh, church leader because you're not doing it as an assignment. You're just doing it because you saw a need. Brethren, we're awful at this. The sisters trump us on this by quite a bit. You guys just do your thing. It's part of your nature. Um, Alright. So, so uh, now, uh, Moroni's going to get down there. Um, or Mormon's going to get down there. Uh, before we get to 2.12, uh, I want you to look at Mormon 2. That, by the way, we're going to be hopping around a little bit because there wasn't a necessarily a unified theme in this one, but there's a small, a lot of nuggets. I should have listed them by nuggets. This is another nugget. Uh, verse 1. Uh, and it came to pass in the same year, uh, he gets down to the city, um, there began to be a war between the Nephites and the Lamanites, and notwithstanding I being young, I was large in stature. Therefore the people of Nephi appointed me that I should be their leader or the leader of their armies. How old is he? Dang. And the army that he's about to command is how big? 30,000. Now, think about your young priests in your war. How many of those 16-year-olds would you say, hey, let's put you in charge of an army of 30,000 to try and defend the city? <laughs> Does that make any sense? There's some good kids. Yeah. But would you also trust the defense of... I mean, if there was an army marching on Alan McKinney... Plano, would you put a 16-year-old in charge of that? Well, I think we're probably just about as safe as some of the leaders of the <laughs> 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 They're just about as safe as the current leaders. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> so, yeah. I think back then they were in more 
Yeah. Yeah. Okay, now he's a big kid, we know that, right? Okay, so we're going to choose a really big kid. I make sure you think of a deacon, 12 years old, really? And you have a priesthood. You're going to look at some 12 year olds and what you trust them with. Yeah, because they're still somewhat sober, right? Right. Even the really good ones are somewhat sober? <laughs> okay, turn for just a second, if you will, because I think this is a partial answer. Yeah. Turn, someone find uh, 3 Nephi 3.19. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, uh, thank you. She said, why would they pick him? Because it is going to, I think, be well known that he was visited by the Lord. If not, if you didn't know that exactly, you would see it in his countenance. Who's got 3 Nephi 3.19? Yeah, okay. Now, it was a custom among all the Nephites to appoint for their chief captains, say that were in the time of wickedness, someone that had the spirit of revelation and also prophecy. Therefore, it is gifted Oni with a great prophet among them, as, as was also the chief judge. Okay. First part of that tells you, I mean, I understand this is a time of wicked, but they, they have a tradition in that who has been their leaders? Somebody with... Spirit of prophecy. Now, in a time of wickedness, why would they want somebody with a spirit of prophecy? They want to win. They want to win. That's right. We don't understand. All we know the tradition is, whenever we've had a guy with prophecy at our head, we win. And I think that's the deal. He's kind of a good luck charm. So they weren't looking for it for them to go with him. Right. Because they were looking for him to be righteous and take them. But yeah, they, they wanted him to be, here's a righteous kid, and we know it, and they may even have found out, we may have been preaching in churches or something, that he's, he's a good guy. And whenever we have prophets on our head, we win. And, we'll, and we want to win. So we may not believe in what he's saying, we're not listening to his preaching, but he's a big guy with a spirit of prophecy, and we have a history of doing pretty well with those guys. So let's have him be our leader. Okay, does that make sense? That's to me. Okay? But it turns out also with the spirit of prophecy, he's going to be able to do some, some uh, marvelous things here. Okay, now. Um, so now let's go down to... Because an interesting thing happens here. By the way, he's going to lose four, four battles before he finally wins one. Okay? Um... Verse 10, it came to pass the Nephites began to repent of their iniquity. They keep losing. They began to cry, even as it had been prophesied. 11, there began to be a mourning, a lamentation. And look at 12. It came to pass that when I, Mormon, saw their lamentation and mourning and their sorrow, was his response? Wahoo! You know, it's times when, like as a, as a therapist, I make what I call stupid therapist statements. Someone come in and is like, I am really angry. And I'll go, yay, finally. <laughs> you know, 
we're making some breakthroughs here. You should have been angry here a long time ago. Now you are. Yay! Okay? Well, it's like they're sorrowing and he's going, Yay! Finally, maybe this will be the thing that causes them to re repent. Uh, and my heart did begin to rejoice, knowing the mercies and the long-suffering of the Lord. Therefore, supposing he would be merciful unto them, he always has been, they would, be, they would again begin to be a righteous people. This is our opportunity. We have a window here. They're mourning. They're feeling sad. They, they can't hold on to their stuff. Their stuff disappears on them. They bury their treasures. It's gone. They're mourning. And it's almost like, I, I, I picture it almost like uh, Joseph Smith when he's walking out of the grove and just really excited about the vision that he tries to tell people. He's about to be really disappointed. Verse 13. But behold my, what? Joy was... My joy was vain. I hoped. For their sorrowing and repentance because of the goodness of God, but rather it was the sorrowing of the damned. Wow. Now, he's about to, to uh, as Mormon has always done, Mormon has a style. As a, as a literary writer, Mormon has a style. And Mormon's favorite um, way of teaching in everything that he did, all the way through the Book of Mormon, is always contrast. He will show you one thing and then another. And he will contrast the two together. He loves contrast. And he's about to do that again. Again, think about how the Book of Mormon was constructed all the way through. It's always by contrast. Good kings, bad kings. He always puts all those together. Okay? Now, uh, my joy is vain. Uh, there's the sorrowing of the damned. Um, and look at 14. They did not come unto Jesus with broken hearts and contrite spirits, but they did. Now here's the contrast. On one side, broken hearts and contrite spirits, and how we feel when we're doing that. Grateful. Are we just incredibly grateful? And then you contrast that with what's the next part of that? They are going to curse God and die. Yeah, and then they did. Okay. Never, and because of that, nevertheless, they would. Yeah, they're going to end up having to struggle with the sword for their lives. Now. He's about to contrast, though, that I think something that is kind of significant here. Uh, describe, describe godly sorrow. What is, what is godly sorrow? It's righteous. What else? It is the gift of the Spirit. He's going to give you that. Your sorrow, you know, you're feeling sad. There are tears. It brings you to repentance. Okay? And he's going to contrast that with the sorrowing of the damned, which is what? They're, yeah, they're just going to completely feel sorry for themselves. Okay? To the point, though, uh, as uh, 
Elder Maxwell said, uh, when we're at this point, we mourn our mistakes without mending them. We're sad about it, but we don't do anything about it to change it. Yeah? It reminds me of Scarlett O'Hara, you know, she killed off Frank Kennedy. Yeah. She's sobbing and she's drunk and Red comes and says, you're like a thief, but sorry they got caught. You know, it's not sorry that she's killed Frank. Yeah. And I think think that's true. And that is the sorrowing of the damned. In other words, I'm feeling sorrow, but it's not going to motivate me to change and do anything different. I'm just going to feel bad about where I am. And then I'm going to get really bitter. How many people have we known that have maybe left the church that are stuck in this one? The church is horrible and this wasn't right and that bishop was awful and that, 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 that. Now I'm going to change anything I'm doing? Oh, oh no. Yeah. It's more, I'm sorry you can't accept me for who I am. I don't have to change. Just accept me for who I am. Yeah, change your life to fit me. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, now. Let me throw in one more piece and make this one again that I see, that I struggle with, because uh, this is maybe not a direction you were thinking of, but just, we have a godly sorrow and we have a sorrowing of the damned. What I see often are sor- people that sorrow over sins that they've already repented about. Now, let me ask, is that a godly sorrow? Or is that a sorrowing of the damned? Or is that a different category? Why? What? What would be the? Su- Why would somebody sorrow over repentant sins? Yeah. Satan just coming in and saying, you know what, you're you're not good enough. You're still not good enough. Yeah, I'm just going to continue to beat you up on that. Take advantage of that. I think you're not understanding the character of Christ, not who He really is and His power. Can't get that. That sometimes one of the things that I see, and and, and this is certainly one where part of the struggle with people that have repented of their sins but continue to sorrow over them and beat themselves up is simply the fact that they do not understand how the Savior works and the power of the atonement and His nature and how quickly He really forgives us. Well, I noticed yesterday in Timothy when we were reading that Paul sort of still would beat himself up over what he had done. Sure. And I think, by the way, I think that's a natural tendency. I think we do that. That we have this tendency to say, I'm going to continue to be harrowed up by the memory of my sins. Nephi does that, doesn't he? In, in 2 Nephi 4. You know, he starts down that road and he goes, wait a minute, stop. Stop. I'm not going to let the enemy of my soul no longer beat me up for this stuff. In other words, what I'm saying to you, I think there's a natural tendency for us to do that. I think our natural men and women do that. Yeah. Is it possible we can be rescued? We can be rescued that we have a gift of repentance where the Lord is going to forgive us and we feel a sense of peace and calm. What He cannot rescue us from is the consequences sometimes of our actions. When I when I talk when I talk to women who make who make the the wonderful, powerful, courageous. Uh, I can't celebrate these ladies enough that if something unfortunate happens and they are teenagers and they become pregnant, that they make a very, very gutsy call to give that baby up for adoption. 
and make sure that baby is in a, in a different home with a lumber, that's a gutsy call. It is a courageous call, and I can't celebrate those ladies enough. But there are consequences to that that says, I have a child out there somewhere. And I think that can, that can be sitting out there for quite a while, obviously. Yeah. Can't some of these feelings, though, keep us humble? It, is there an element in which having that might keep us in a humbler place? Sure. I think that's that because we know the ten or the, the that we could fall yeah. because we've been there. So you know, just that in a positive way, it just keeps us humble. We're not above the law. We're not too good to. I have a uh, I've got a high priest group leader who is a who is a recovering alcoholic, and he's been sober now for 25 years, and he still gets up every morning and he goes, "Today I'm an addict. <laughs> I've got to keep myself. I got to." Make sure I do my scripture study in the morning. I, I'm just trying to get through today. Not another 25 years. Yeah. I think that another question is remembering those repentance sentences that it gives us an opportunity to be empathetic. It does give us a chance to be empathetic, doesn't it? That we tend to be a little bit more uh, careful of those that are also struggling in their life. A little less prideful. Yeah. One of the things that um, <clears throat> I've learned and I'm still learning as I've come to realize, even though I don't always like the consequences of things that I've done, that the Savior's atonement somehow will make good out of whatever happened. He can still make everything turn out okay. Oh. Does that make sense? That, 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 that what she's saying is that the Savior's atonement has a way, even in the things that we've struggled with, of turning it to our good, of taking something destructive and putting us in a place where either by humility or reminder or empathy that it ends up being a good result. Yeah, I think that's very true. Well, you know it can't be from God if it doesn't have any hope in it. Oh, it can't be from God. And that's what, how do we know which one is which? The sor godly sorrow says, I, I feel bad about what I've done, but there's hope that he, I'm going to be forgiven at some point. Sorrowing of the damned is the sorrowing of the damned. They're, they're, they're blocked. There's no hope. Yeah? Which is, it would seem that if you're sorrowing over your repentant sins, who's got control over you? Yeah. You know, and that is sorrowing of the damned. And so I think there's a fine line there. What you're saying is there's a fine line. The remembrance of your repentant sins is important. Yeah. But the sorrowing of them puts you on the other side. That's right. And, and see, that's why I think a lot of times the sorrowing over repentant sins, I think, has some, some Lucifer urgings on there because the Lord intends for us to let them go. To have the remembrance of that, even if there are consequences, but He means for us to have joy. And if it's robbing us of joy and robbing us of hope, then it's coming from the wrong source. Uh, good, great point. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, we, we do. Marlowe Mar Teaches Institute up in, uh, in Chicago. Um, we do, and I love the paradigm of perfection thing. In other words, our understanding of what perfection means means that if I'm not perfect at the moment, then somehow I have 
failed and perfect and we forget that perfection means wholeness and completeness and won't happen until the resurrection. But we misunderstand that. Great point. Okay. Let's let's look at because here's one that I think we need to understand too. Because I need you to see something here. Now, because of this, because they're they're doing the sorrowing of the damned, uh, Moroni or Mormon being quick to observe, uh, 15. It came to pass that my sorrow did return unto me again. I was hopeful. I saw the sorrowing, not so much. Okay did return to me again, and I saw that the day of grace had, was passed with them both temporally and spiritually. Now, I need to contrast this for just so, so that you see what it is that he's saying here. Um, this, is, this happens in the year uh, 344 A.D. Okay, it's about 20 years later when he's saying... The, the day of grace has passed. Now hop over for just a second over to uh, third Nephi, or third Mor uh, Mormon three. Flip over the page, and I want you to look at uh, Mormon three twelve. Um, Fifteen. Mormon 3.15 which says what? Somebody got that? The Lord is going with that. Vengeance is mine and I will repay and because the people repented not after I delivered them behold they shall be cut off from the face of the earth. Okay, now somewhere in there it might be worth even writing in the margin or something like that. When the Lord says in chapter 2 that the day of grace had passed that's 344 A.D. What you're about to see here is 362 A.D. Now that's going to be... Why is that important? And in 344 he's saying the day of grace is past. 362, some 20 odd years later, now vengeance is mine. The day is past, they will be destroyed. Twenty years. What does that say? Okay, the, the, the Lord is still giving them a chance, even when the day of grace is past. So, let's take a step back. What would be the day, what, what, what is, what is uh, grace? Love of God. It is the love of God. The atonement. But I didn't think it was ever passed until we died. Yeah, you'd think so, wouldn't you? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I just think that the people were at a point where they, he, the Lord knew that they just wouldn't change. They just right. rejected. Okay. So, so, but I want you to keep an eye that there's two levels of things that have just occurred. 344. The day of grace has passed. Now, but the destruction of the people is not absolutely decreed for 20 years later. Now there's no going back. Vengeance is mine. I will repay all that wickedness that you've done. You're, this city is about to go away. And this people are about to go away. 
So the day of grace is, day of grace is past, and grace in this context is simply the enabling power of the atonement. He is the wind beneath your wings. This is what the Nephites have always had, is His grace. Meaning, how are we going to beat the Lamanites? There's not that many of us. And then we do. What happened? Grace. We're not sure how we're going to be able to go preach the gospel to these Lamanites. They're really horrible. How did they convert so many people? Grace. How are they going to be prospered and as soon as they turn to the Lord? Grace. There's a grace which is a gift they didn't deserve. They got it anyway. Grace. And the day of grace is past, meaning that now for the next 20 years, what are they going to do? They're on their own. You're on your own, guys, and see how you do without my power. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? So he's it's like he's watching them. The day of grace has passed. We're trying to do this. You guys aren't listening. And now you see why his joy is in his vein. He's just watching this. Now, but watch this next level that he's about to uh, to do here. If we look at uh, uh, two um, or three three twelve to three fifteen. Let's back up. Verse 12. 20 years later. He's been, there, been a general for 20 years. I had led them, notwithstanding their wickedness, I led them many times to battle. Listen to him. I had loved them according to the love of God which was in me with all my heart. Nevertheless, it was without faith because of the hardness of their hearts. Verse 13, Thrice I've delivered them from the hands of their enemies, and they repented not. 14, Thou they did something that is going to cause them to go from the state of grace, or without grace, to seal their fate as a nation. What, did they, what happens, what did they do in verse 14? Vengeance. It's one thing to defend your land, it's another thing to go on the offensive. And to be primarily driven by what? Revenge. Does anything happen good in your life when you are driven by bitterness and revenge in the actions you do? Yeah. 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 I know. There's the hard. There's the hard battle. Are we going to defend ourselves because we've got to take care of the threat? Are we going out of a sense of revenge? And will and will that seal our? I don't know. I don't have an answer to that. It's not very clear to me. I can argue both sides of that. Especially with Iraq, I can go both sides on that. Okay? What, what drives us? And I think we always have to be able to look in our hearts and say, the actions that I do and the things that I do, am I being driven by a sense of love, want to call somebody repentance, or am I being driven by bitterness and anger and revenge? 
I don't, and, and you think about it, sometimes even in our disciplining, for instance, of our teenage kid, they've really done something that hurt us. Are you disciplining out of a sense of, I hope this corrects them so they'll no longer do this anymore? Or, or you say, I want them to bleed. <laughs> I want blood and pain. Because they hurt me, I want you hurting. So I may end up being harsher than I, than I would have been. Yeah. Oh, and then we turn it on ourselves. I've been bad, so I'm going to have revenge and bitterness or two. Me. I want me to bleed. I did a horrible thing. I'm going to have to really beat myself up. And I just think, you know what? That's one of the reasons. Good point. It's one of the reasons why we hang on to stuff 20 years later. Well, I just don't think I've lived. I need more pain. I need more suffering. What I did was really, really bad. And I know that the Savior said that He forgave me, but I just don't think I paid for it enough. I need to keep putting deposits into that thing because it was a, it was a bad thing and I hurt somebody's feelings, and so I got to keep on it. In fact, I should be beating on me, and it would be better if you beat on me, but I didn't want to tell you what it is that I did, so I would I would do your beating for me as well. <laughs> Don't we do that? We're gonna hang on to stuff. Women do it more than men, I think. You're better at it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. I thought about that. See, you have a thing in your brain, the corpus callosum, separates the halves of the brain, and it's, you have the emotional side and the detail side, and as, and as men, we have a drawbridge between the two. Stuff trickles across. That's why we can compartmentalize things and put things in boxes and, and forget about stuff and put stuff away. And, uh, that, that's why as men, men are better at like having an argument and that intimacy 10 minutes later is a possibility. <laughs> that they did and the blood lust 
and the sacrificing of kids and everything that you start getting into, okay? And it, it's pretty it's pretty bad stuff, okay? Moroni dying is kind of like Song of Solomon. You know, you might wonder how that one got in there. But anyway. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. They will be cut off. And then look at 16. Moroni, or Mormon then for the first time does something that he has not been willing to do heretofore. In verse 16. What does he do? I'm off this ship. I am done. If you're going to go, what you guys now want to do in the direction that you're heading with everything that I just watched you doing, I'm off this ship. Now he will spend probably about the next 15 years writing and compiling and reading and putting it together. Uh, there's some, there's some, I uh, don't have time to go into it, but some sense that he may have then created an outline by which he started outlining things and then started putting the content in and trying to decide which stories he's going to tell, which ones he's going to carve into the, into the metal plates. Um, okay. Um, there's one more I wanted to, to show you. I have a question. Yes, ma'am. Well, during those 15 years, was he hidden away? Yeah. Well, and in fact, again, when we, when we talk about uh, Moroni 7, I think he went on a mission. I think he went on a mission to the anti-Nephi-Lehites. And he's going to finally in Moroni 7 have somebody to preach to. And they're going to be the ones with the peaceable, walking the peaceable walk. Well, there's nobody in Zarahemla that fits that one. He, had to, he was going to have to get out of Dodge to go do that. And I think he went up and spent some time riding to get in that place. Yeah. you to see something here that I thought, oh, I know where it is. Maybe I put it in here. Oh, there it is. I, I did put a slide in here. Why don't you see something? Why don't you turn to uh, Mormon 5? And actually, if you look in verse 2, and boy, we could spend a lot of time on this one. Um, Mormon 5.2, But behold, I was without hope. For a prophet, can you imagine? I am without hope for this people. Uh, for they did struggle with their lives without calling upon that being who created them. Now, 
Verse 8. Now behold, I Mormon, do not desire to harrow up the souls of men and casting upon them such an awful scene of blood and carnage. Moroni will do that for him. <laughs> Moroni 9. Um, awful scene of blood and carnage was laid before mine eyes. But I know something, and that's what? Knowing that these things must surely be made known and that all things which are hid, look at the next word, must, must be shouted from the rooftops. Why? Why would these horrible things, now you know why Moroni 9 is there. Why must these things be shouted? So the people can see it. That our sins will be shouted. So that we know, and people know, that God is just. I didn't just destroy the city for the heck of it. Here are their sins. Let me tell you how, how bad they were. And then you go, destroy them. <laughs> Wipe them off. This is really awful. Now, here's something else though. And this is really subtle. So 8 says, these things must be made known, and all things which are hid must be revealed from the housetops. Okay? Now, why is he going to have to write these horrible things? Look at verse 12. These things are written unto the remnant of the house of Jacob. Okay, stop there. Who's the remnant of the house of Jacob? We are, and specifically in this case, the Lamanites. You start talking about remnants, he's talking Lamanites and Gentiles who will be included in this. So, specifically Lamanites. These things are written under the remnant of Jacob and they are written after this manner clearly, concisely, boldly. Why? Because it is known of God that wickedness will not bring them forth unto them. Okay? Somebody put that in different words. What's it, what did he just say? What's that? Yeah. And not just that it never was happiness. No. The wicked will never tell you these things. I have to bring these things because they must be shouted from the rooftop and the wicked won't tell you how wicked it's been. The wicked will try and do what? Cover up. Quick. Hide. Hide. That's bad stuff. And they're going to justify it. It's okay. It's not that big a deal. What about that stuff? One of the ways that you know that a teen is in trouble, what's the first thing they do? They start lying. Cover it up. I don't want that known. The wicked have never wanted their wickedness known. In other words, if I'm, if I'm struggling, for instance, uh, with certain tendencies to do things, I may paint the good side of it, but I'm not going to tell you the painful parts of that. I need to keep it buried. Sometimes. The more wicked becomes, the more we are into secrets. One of my mantras in counseling is we're only as sick as our secrets. 
And the more secrets we keep, the more sick we are. Okay? So, these things are written. I have written these things in the detail that I've written because the wicked won't tell you about them. Okay? Does that make sense? Okay. Two quick things here. I want to do this one. One last one. Here's a beautiful... We haven't had a chance to get very many principles pulling out of this because we're looking at what they're doing. There are some. But this one, if, if we have a principle to kind of take home this week, this is the one that I think we ought to look at. Because he's going to do something interesting in 17. And this is Mormon's literary style. Contrast. 17. They were once a delightsome people... They had Christ as their shepherd. In other words, in, in, in other places in Isaiah and Micah and a few others, the Savior will talk a lot, the, the, the prophets will talk a lot about we are as calves in a stall. <coughs> we are sheep to the shepherd. What, what, is it, what kind of pictures does that paint for you? You kind of get this pastoral... We're, we're, in the, we're in the sheepfold. The shepherd is there. He's protecting us from the wolves. Y you know, there's like sweet music playing overhead. You know, it's just very peaceful and calm. We're safe. We're at peace. Okay? Now, listen to what he contrasts that with. 18. They, were, they had Christ as their shepherd. They were led by God the Father. 18. But now behold they are led by Satan even as a chaff is driven before the wind or, I love this, as a vessel that is tossed about upon the waves without sail or anchor or without anything with which to steer her. Can you get that picture in your in head? Okay? You're on a ship. It's being tossed all over the place. The wind's blowing. There's no anchor. There's no sails. There's no rudder. It's just all over the place. It's driven to and fro by every wind of doctrine. You get that sense? Imagine the chaos going on in that boat. He says there. So, look at the contrast. Are you going to be as a sheep, quietly in the sheepfold, or are you going to be as a... You're stuck on a ship being bounced all over the ocean getting seasick. You're following the voice. There's my shepherd. I want to be there. I choose to walk and follow him. On the other hand, if you're, you know, a ball or whatever, a ship just popped out there, you're just reacting to everything that's going on around you. And, you know, if someone says something rude to you, you're like, ah. Yes, there's a, that's a good example. Which is so funny because, again, if you think about people that are trying to rebel, you know, kind of go back to like rebellious teenagers kind of thing, and they're going, I just want to be free. I don't want the consequences. I just want to do whatever I want to do. Don't make me do all this kind of stuff. I don't want to be a sheeple. I want to be a sheep. I want to do my own thing. Great! Have fun in the boat. Boat's a lot of fun, man. There's no sail. There's a storm. You know, there's no rudder. There's no anchor. It just goes all over the place. You having a great time yet? How's that working out? 
And then because they're the wicked, what are they going to do? And in between throwing up because they're seasick. Oh, this is cool. I like this a lot. Yeah. <laughs> you enjoying your freedom? Yeah, this is so much better than being stuck in church. Really? Yeah. Even if it's not, I'm not about to tell you. Okay. So the principle is sheep or shit. Okay. Final. We have five minutes. How many people uh, die at uh, Hill Cumorah just in terms of the men, folk? 230,000. Okay? Just in terms of the men. But we also know that they brought their kids and wives and so it's a, it's a much larger amount. Okay? Now, just informational wise. Depend on the scholars that you talk to. The word Nephi uh, is taken from, is it, he's actually Egyptian. Nephi is, it, is its root. Uh, and remember in, in Arabic and, and Egyptian and Hebrew there's no vowels and so it just, you go by the consonant stuff. So it was originally, this is more information you really want to know, it was originally uh, NFY, E5, Exceedingly fair. They were numbered among the Nephites. They were called Nephites. And so a better way, if, if, if the word is actually fair, a good way, a good uh, description of Nephite, the, uh, the translation of a Nephite would be fair ones. That make sense? Okay. So now let's look at Mormon 6. After, after uh, all of the destruction is done, then Mormon is going to write his epitaph to the Nephite people. And he's going to say, O ye fair ones, how could ye have departed from the ways of the Lord? Ye fair ones, ye Nephites, Nephites are fair ones. How could you have rejected that, Jesus? Behold, if you had not done this, you would not have fallen, but you've fallen, I mourn your loss. O ye fair sons and daughters, ye mothers and fathers, husbands and wives, ye Nephites, how is it that ye have, could have fallen? Now, I believe that part of that is a message then. It's interesting that he begins to break it down in terms of husbands and wives and sons and daughters. What's he describing? Families. Families, yeah. So the challenge that I want to leave with you today is that we be fair ones. 
that we be Nephites. Nephites in the sense that we that the day of grace has not passed us by. Nephites in the sense that we still have His grace as a as a wind at our back. Fair ones in the sense that we allow ourselves to be in the shepherd or to be in, to be led by the shepherd. And fair ones in the sense that we uh, are quick to observe. That we make our, we discern, we choose, and then we act on it quickly. Those are fair ones. Those are Nephites. At their greatest. When they cease to be fair ones, they cease to be Nephites. And then they had to be destroyed. I uh, bear in my testimony that we, that again, as uh, Elder Holland said so magnificently, surely this, uh, there is one generation that all these prophets like Mormon have looked forward to, and it's this one. Because this is the first dispensation, this is the, this is the generation that will not fail. This is the generation unlike any other ones that will remain fair and will usher in the second coming. This is the one that will be successful and that makes it then possible for all those prophets who would have wished to be here. That it then becomes worth it. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name.